The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Saturday, June the 8th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. James O'Brien is a British broadcaster and journalist who is one of the most prominent voices on the Remain side of the Brexit debate. His monologues and arguments on his daily talk show on LBC Radio reach millions of listeners and are amplified across social media by the many people who support his views. James is going to be appearing next week at the Doggy Book Festival to discuss his book, How to Be Right in a World Gone Wrong. James, you're very welcome to the podcast. Uh, Reading your book, um, one of the things that occurred to me um, was I've never actually read a book based on a talk radio show before. (laughs) No, nor had I. That's one of the reasons I wrote it. Um, I I, I think inevitably a lot of the points I'm trying to make in the book and a lot of the arguments I'm putting forward are are based on the conversations that I've had with callers to the show over the years. And and so um, some of them are so more illustrative of the points I'm trying to make than I could ever be in, in straight prose, that it, 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 it seemed a good idea to put them in. And then, of course, when I was quite late on deadline and watching the word count very, very closely, being able to transport transcripts of, of conversations I'd already had into the middle of the text turned out to be quite helpful. For, very, um, very, very useful indeed, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. especially <laughs> exactly. when you're right on deadline. All right, it's always great to get get something like that to throw throw it in. But yeah. I, one of the things that occurs to me also reading it is that I mean, here in Ireland, as 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 you probably know, we're kind of saturated with British media. We know an awful yes. lot about your media and what's happening over there, and it doesn't work the other way around. You guys oh, don't no. all know as much about us, but we don't know quite so much about radios. Just the way that media works, we don't listen. To British radio in the same way we watch British TV or even maybe read British newspapers. So, um, sure. like, I'm largely familiar with your show from snippets of it that get thrown up on Twitter by people who go, yes. uh, "Oh, look, there's you know, there's James, you know, owning another Brexiteer or or or, or whatever it might be." <laughs> is yeah. that is that what the whole show is like, or do you have stuff about you know uh, heartwarming stories about people and their pets and stuff as well? Uh, oh, I mean, the clips are obviously the the, the kind of. Um extreme examples of what goes on. Yesterday we took two hours of calls from people just telling their family stories about the Second World War as a way of um, marking the D-Day anniversary without without necessarily going down a, a well-worn route. So I mean, I, I'll talk about absolutely anything on the show. But yeah, the clips the clips are actually quite unrepresentative. I'm not, I'm not going to look at gift, ho- gift horse in the mouth because they've They've changed everything for me career-wise, but um, it, in terms of how representative they are of a daily three-hour show that has light and shade, ups and downs, lightly, you know, serious and silly, they're, they're probably not the best aperitif. So do I get a very wrong idea then of what LBC right. is like? Because when I come across, you know, the, your clips and then, you know, come across bits of Nigel Farage and back in the past, occasionally bits of Katie Hopkins, I kind of go, what the hell is this radio station? What are Londoners and the rest of the UK listening to? Yes, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I suppose the, the, the short answer is that everybody has equal access to the platform. Hopkins isn't, isn't there anymore. That, that was an interesting interlude, but Farage very much is. And um, I, I, people sometimes say when you're so staunchly opposed to what he represents, how can you share a platform with him? But I, I just find myself thinking, what else I'm supposed to do? You know, I'm, I have no uh, real editorial restrictions on what I can say and cover on the show. And I, I don't think there's really anywhere else in the British media or probably the Irish media where I can operate with that, that level of liberty. So um, 
yeah, hey, we, we, we've all got colleagues we'd rather not. Do you, do you, did you ever find yourself, there are ever awkward moments, you find yourself standing at the urinal and you look over to your left? No, it's or, never or probably happened. to your right, there's, actually. There's a <laughs> to the face, eight, eight urinals to the right. I've um, I've never really sort of crossed paths with him. We're on air at very different times of day, so we might occasionally be sitting in the same company meeting. But there's no, uh, there's no, there's no awkward uh, stuck lifts to share with you or anything like that. Because <laughs> one of the things that, that I. I occurred to me I have a kind of half formed almost certainly incorrect kind of theory of media where certainly when you look at the United States and actually even when you look here in Ireland that the the kind of the talk radio shock jock uh, anger um, sort of form of media does seem to yes. skew more to the right. Certainly, of course, it originally did originate in the States with the rush limbos of this world. It seems to suit a certain kind of a rightward trajectory more than a leftward one. It seems to be more successful in terms of hitting that yes. into the market. Yeah, it certainly does. Um, I, I, it, I'm not quite sure what I've got right. I don't like to overanalyze it in case it, in case it falls apart under scrutiny. But I think, because I had a background in tabloid newspapers, I was show business editor of The Express before I went into broadcasting. So I think, oddly, I've got um, the vocabulary of, of slightly sensationalist opinion-based journalism, but the, the principles I abide by are very, very different from traditional right-wing tabloids. So I sometimes think perhaps I've got... I've got slightly similar tactics, although, as I say, most of the time we'll be doing much more cerebral stuff. And maybe maybe that just helps as a package with which to, to smuggle in the points I'm trying to make. I always say, I say in the book, that, and I think this is the point you're making really, it's a hell of a lot easier to sell tickets for the ghost train than it is for the speaker weight machine. So, you know, if I'm telling you that there's people over there that want to nick your job or, or, or claim your benefits or, uh, you know, corrupt your country or undermine your culture, people like being frightened. That's, that's why ghost trains are the most popular ride in the fairground. But no, I'm, I, I seem to have found a, a niche that I'm very grateful for. Is there a weakness on the left or the centre-left or the liberal side or however you might want to characterise it that, uh, that we're all a bit too happy listening to noodly podcasts with people being nice to each other rather than uh, red, you know, red-faced colonels you know, shouting into a microphone at us? <laughs> there might be something in that. I, I think there's also, I mean, you'd be quite surprised by the socio-economic makeup of the LBC audience. It, it, it skews very much to the middle class, actually, and the, the sort of ABC, ABs. But um, uh, for me, it, it's, it, I, I quite like listening to the colonels. And if I'm doing my job right, then I'll get, I'll get the calls from the, from the funky millennials as well. The problem more for the left and the centre left in the context of the kind of work I do is that there's so little humour and sense of mischief. So I, it, it can often seem earnest, you know, even in the mm. Daily Mirror, even at the red top end of... of media that leans to the left there's no there's very rarely much of a sense of fun and i think that's part of the problem and certainly on the radio making people laugh is probably the quickest way to to make a connection with them with as i say the possible exception of of, of trying to spook them in the book i mean you you ask a lot of questions and you try and answer some of those questions uh, and, mm. and a, a lot of the time it seems to me a lot of the answers that come back in terms of your diagnosis of where things have gone wrong let's say or where people have got the wrong end of the stick comes back to the, the the peculiarities and the particularities of the UK media landscape, the right-wing press, the failings of other parts of the media. Is that fair? Absolutely fair, yes. I mean, it's, it's actually incredible if you take a step back and look at it, and, and particularly with, with regard to well, most of the issues in the book, but I suppose Brexit most obviously. Since, since the vote came in, 
I've, I've kind of been on almost an archaeological journey, looking back at coverage, looking for reasons why so many people could have ended up so spectacularly misinformed. And, and it is breathtaking. There's an archive on the EU's own website. Um, I think it's Mythbusters or something like that. And stories that were being published over a 30-year period, not just the, the stuff that we all know about or the, or the exaggerations and the, um, uh, the, the big mistakes that are well known, but, but also so much little stuff like they're going to ban rocking horses or they're going to ban certain flavors of crisp or one bloke believed that, uh, I think he'd seen a story that, that, that the toilet system fills up more slowly now as a result of an EU directive. So that, that, that you know, they're quite funny examples, but it creates an image of an enemy. So when people are offered an invitation to run away from that enemy, they're going to take it. They're not going to stop and work out whether the enemy is real. Most people are going to do fight or flight, which I think explains a lot of the British reaction to, to European membership in, in general, not just, not just the referendum. And I mean, as you say, you worked with the Express. I think it was a somewhat different paper back then in the in the nineties when very, very different very, when very you were working there. But you were yes. working on the on the showbiz side. And in fact, it seems to be one of the phenomena is that you know there's this blurring of the line between you know entertainment and politics, for example. And uh, and just just yeah. looking at that, I just wonder. I mean, having been inside that, how do you think, or why do you think that the British press went so far to the right. For example, the Express, when it changed ownership, when you know became the mm. most pro-Brexit uh, newspaper in the in the UK for a while. I think it's pretty straightforward. So I, mean, I, I shouldn't. I'm not being holier than thou. I'd make a point about not having been on the Express when Richard Desmond owned it, but it was more. Well, it was entirely through luck rather than judgment. So, what what happened shortly after he took over is is, is a fairly logical way of doing things. You'll remember that for a while, every front page was about the late Princess Diana. Uh, they went absolutely nuts for those quasi-conspiracy theories and similarly stories about the weather. And the reason for that was that they were seeing a spike uh, I, I, somewhere in the region of fifty to 100,000 copies for certain types of story. Um, maybe not quite that much, but a big enough spike for them to think, well, let's try and put something like that on the front page. I, I was chatting to someone the other day who um, go, goes to a conference at the Daily Star in, in London, which is a sister title of the well, they're all owned by Reach now, aren't they? The old Mirror Group, and they, they apparently now are under instructions to come up with snowflake stories, stories about snowflakes, because they've seen the the, the graph from the commercial department and stories about snowflakes like people. So again, you're looking at, a, a, I presume, a largely commercial rather than ideological decision to 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 make money out of frightening people and making them angry, and that explains the massive success of. Paul Dacre at the Daily Mail, but it also explains why Daily Star journalists now are apparently under pressure to come up with stories which allow the, the front page to portray modern children as somehow being um, sort of weak and, and, and flimsy. I mean, in a way, that's more disturbing, isn't it, than the idea of some kind of plutocrat in the in in the back office dictating what the editorial line would be. It's a bit like we hear about these algorithms and social media, which drive people yes. into further and further extremity because that's what's going to get more clicks and therefore more revenue. Yes. And in a way, that that's this is just another version of that. It's exactly another version of that, and you're seeing it in politics for real as well. Of course, you're seeing, you know, positions that that, that, that would have been. Uh, close to lunacy five years ago now someone taxed to what is at that point a lunatic position but the, the, the traction that follows sees other people move towards it even if they don't go if they don't go all, all the way there I, I think it, I mean crikey I, I'm not going to offer this up as being reassuring 
but one guard on the sort of escalation you describe is the fact that they, they generally just change target. So it's not as if they're ramping up new levels of negativity towards the same target. That, you know, it, 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 it's, it's probably going to go back to Muslims or immigrants in general or single mothers or, or the unemployed or um, you're seeing a very, very ugly of, of institutional homophobia and a lot of the coverage of trans issues now. So I, I, I think if you, if, you, if you follow me, that, that guards against escalation because they just essentially tell the same story and throw the same barbs, but at, at, at alternating targets. And then in a very different, I suppose, well, it's a somewhat different part of the media. I kind of look with despair sometimes on the way the BBC has handled some of these, it obviously has a very different mission that, you know, at least in theory. And I, I kind of feel some sympathy for people in the BBC sometimes because they get assailed by all sides. But sometimes I look at them and I think they're kind of comforting themselves because they are being assailed by all sides. But just in terms of basic objective, you know, covering the facts uh, in the best possible way in a public yes. service way, they just seem to fall down an awful lot at the moment. I know you've worked for them in the in, in the past. I have, yes. I, I presented Newsnight occasionally for a while and I couldn't carry on doing it because BBC impartiality rules preclude you from expressing a p political opinions in, in other work, not just when you're on the BBC. So my Twitter account became quite a problem and possibly even more than my LBC radio show. But So I, I, mean, I could have toned that down and stayed there. And the reason I didn't want to is largely because of what you've just alluded to. It, it, it's not just about, I mean, there's a few things that I'd fix if I was in charge. But initially, it's, it's the words. If you look at the, the, the story of, and again, I, I guess you go first for Brexit, you know, no control over our borders or Brussels make our laws. And people still aren't being asked to explain exactly what they mean by that. You know, the, the obvious question is which laws or um, the money that we're going to take back control of our money. Do they mean that I think just around 1% of our national budget that we send to the European Union, taking control of that? It doesn't make any sense. So the slogans have been allowed to flourish more or less unchallenged. And, and, and that I think a lot of the fault for that sadly lies with the BBC, who are quite cowed at the moment. They do over-respond, I think, to criticism, um, particularly I, I felt from the sort of ERG-flavoured of organised uh, complainers. But, but the other thing that upsets me is the, is the manufactured equivalence. You know, you, you see it, I think, most obviously with... MMR vaccines, uh, they've had much bigger problems with climate change coverage. This idea that every position has an opposite and equal uh, uh, alternative, which simply isn't true. You know, it, it, it kind of means that you turn issues that should be 95 to 5 into issues that sound like they're 50-50. And, and, and that, that, again, I don't really understand why that they haven't got more of a more of a handle on that. Just, They've moved on climate change, but they haven't moved on much else. Strange con con conceptualization of balance about balance by me. But what, yes. what, what I wonder even even more about it sometimes is, and I know live broadcasting in particular is difficult. You know, to respond to something in the moment and you don't have the information, mm. you know, necessarily at your fingertips. But given that it's probably the best resource broadcasting organization in the world, when you've got a serious news or current affairs program on and something says something that's demonstrably false, particularly in this day yeah. and age where you know the the truth yeah. is at your fingertips for the person who's yeah. perhaps in the control room and they're in the presenter's yes. ear. It seems very rare that that stuff gets called, you know? I, I, basic fact-checking. Yep. It, it is incredible. Interviewees allowed to talk, I mean, most obviously about um, what, what Article 24 of, of GATT would allow to happen. And from, from the Irish perspective, absolutely head and shoulders above everything else, is the way they keep wanging on about the British border in Ireland it, it, without recognising that almost everything they've said has already been 
disproven. And, and when you're the other guest, it, it's, it, I, I sympathize sometimes because they try and point this out. And again, they get painted almost as, as just offering up a 50-50 position on, on stuff that's actually written down, you know. It's not, it's not um, nebulous stuff that's plucked from the clouds. It's written down and people are speaking particularly about that border as if they've never read anything, let alone the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, right through to, to things today, the, the, I think it's the Northern Irish Road Haulage Association, they've put out an 11-strong thread on Twitter that just states facts, and yet it, they, they still have the, the feeling of being shocking because they're not treated as facts in, 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 in so much of the, the whole media, but the BBC again in particular, not, not picking these people up when they say, say stuff that they should know is not true. So one of the things that's really interesting about the book, and I mentioned it at the start, is you know the kind of the, the the foundation, the blocks of it are these conversations which you've had with with callers on the on the show. Mm. These kind of I don't know Socratic dialogues with people from Essex that's and Derby and <laughs> yeah. all the all 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 the rest of it. Um, and I, I I have to confess I was a little bit uneasy about it because it's not exactly a level playing field between you and them, is it? I mean you're a you know you're a professional broadcaster who's been doing this stuff for you know fifteen or twenty years or more and these are people who were just impelled to pick up the phone to you you know so you you do tend to beat them around the place a fair deal and i just wonder is that always fair do you have any concerns about doing that i, I, I think i've mellowed a bit over the years the calls go back quite a long way but it, in a way you kind of i think answered the question yourself in the in the sense that I, 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 you know people know what i'm like they know exactly what they expect and it's not as if I ring them I don't, I don't knock on their door or start shouting through their letterbox they ring in usually on the contentious issues because and this is quite illustrative in and of itself they, they, they have persuaded themselves that they've got the stones and the um, knowledge to make to, to put me on the back foot or to make me look a little bit silly that's why they ring in I, I wouldn't go in hard on every caller but there's a certain type of caller who's clearly spoiling for a bit of a scrap which um, I, I quite I quite enjoy so yeah I mean it, it's an unfair playing field but they've ran onto it at full speed uh, the idea that I should respond to that by by playing less well than I can or playing less hard than I can I think might possibly be patronising I think that's I mean I think that's fair enough and actually speaking of patronising one of the things I was interested in you're, you're talking about you, you mentioned in the book you talk about political correctness uh, the whole political correctness gone mad kind of kind of spiel mm. and how the same people who on the one hand think it's ridiculous that they can't use you know um, certain certain types of words to describe people of a different yes. race or gender or sexual orientation or whatever it might be really get up on their high horses when the likes of you describe people who have a certain set of opinions on Brexit for example as stupid that this is the worst, yeah. the most insulting, the foulest, uh, most uh, you know elitist uh, approach you could possibly take. Um, how do you respond to that? And how do you respond maybe also to the people who say that whatever about the position of those people, it mightn't be strategically the best thing to do if you're trying to get these people out of that corner and back into your corner? It, it, there's a danger of, of, and we've all done this, of seeing it in terms of 5248. So like a massive amorphous blob but but it isn't I, and i don't i don't call voters stupid i call positions stupid um but the but the but the choicest language will be reserved for for the most bovine um positions the most sort of silly and demonstrably on un, un, untrue arguments the uh, the, the hypersensitivity stuff is fascinating I, I took a call earlier this week from a chap called steve and we were talking about the donald trump visit this was on wednesday 
And it was very good-natured, actually, which, which plays into your other question. It, it, but it was very much, I only listen to you to find out what the enemy is thinking. But as I say, it was good-natured. And I, I was really interested in this and why the question I was asking is why, why can Trump lie so much and so unchallenged now? How have we, and I've just got back from holiday and sometimes you, you come back shocked anew at how far and how fast we've fallen from what were previously fairly well-established standards. So the question was, what's happened? How, how have we ended up in a place where Donald Trump can stand next to Theresa May in front of the whole world's cameras? and lie through his teeth about events that are unfolding outside the building they were in when he said there weren't any protests and there were thousands of people cheering him. Um, I, I, just like he said, of course, about the rain at the inauguration, about there being no rain at the inauguration. And, and what this chap Steve said was, I, I like it because it, it, it upsets you. And then he said, I also like it because he has a go at Sadiq Khan and I don't like Sadiq Khan. And I said, this is incredibly honest of you, mate, but... You're literally saying that you don't mind being lied to if the liar is landing punches on, on people or positions that you don't like. And, and he was he, he absolutely deadpan. He, he said yes. And then I tried to work out what he meant by sides, as in his side and my sides. That's essentially, I, I rail a lot against racism. And that's quite a good example. And he said, well, my wife's actually, actually Asian. And I said, well, whose side do you think I'm on when people are being rude about your wife's skin colour? And you could hear him realising that he wasn't quite as tribal as he thought he was and that things things were, were, were actually a lot more, possibly a lot more nuanced. But whether or not that thought stays with him after he's, after he's gone off the phone, I don't know. But it, it, just, it just highlighted, for me, a huge part of that, um, I know you are, but what am I type thing that's, that's crept into politics mm. where facts and truth or, or consistency, you know, both teams should play by the same rules. Uh, but we don't. They, they don't. They seem to think like, you know, getting a milkshake thrown at someone is the end of the world as we know it. But, but swinging out and punching someone is a perfectly acceptable <laughs> response to, to heckling or, or, or criticism. But is there, there's this kind of weird disjunction. I mean, you mentioned teams there. It becomes this performative kind of thing that people do on whether on social media or perhaps by yeah. phoning up your show sometimes or whatever it is. And it's yeah. all just about getting one over on the other team, isn't it? It's, it's, it, it's not it, about it's fact. It's very odd. It's very odd as well because, I mean, most people that I would align myself with politically aren't in any team at the moment. You know, you get called a, 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 an appalling lefty by people who swing very far to the right, but you don't like Jeremy Corbyn in my case, in the case of a lot of left-wing people in the United Kingdom. And, and similarly, because you don't like Jeremy Corbyn, you get called all manner of names by his most enthusiastic supporters. So it's, 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 I mean, there's lots and lots of different teams and all of our memberships intersect but i think it's it, i think immigration is is, a, is at the root of all of it i think essentially that that lever from which everything else follows is is that attempt to get people to define themselves according to their to their to their origins and that way those are the two biggest teams not not the not the immigrant and the indigenous, but the but the people comfortable with immigration versus the people not comfortable with it. Um, I know you've got some problems with Jeremy Corbyn, and obviously you're an advocate of a people's vote, and he has a, mm. uh, let's say, a fairly fuzzy uh, walk around the hedge 15 times and keep your eyes closed yeah. and hum, hum loudly enough that people won't, won't hear you, <laughs> kind, kind of a thing going on in relation to that. But there's other things too. I heard you have excoriating him for that um, preface which he wrote to that. I think it was a 1902 book of imperialism, which is full of pretty foul anti-Semitism, and he managed to write this forward to the book without mentioning that fact once is it yeah. is, is everything about Jeremy Corbyn wrong in your view 
I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of the Labour Party's policies, I think, are, are absolutely perfect for Britain at the moment. And my problems are, are very much with him in terms of, in terms of character and, and, and record and, and, and ability and performance. And that, that, that book forward is a good example. There's, there's a massive blind spot there, which is the kindest thing you can say about the anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Um, the kindest thing you can say is that it's a, it, it's a blind spot because the alternative is that there is a failure to understand the profundity of the problem and or uh, a, a failure to desire, a failure of desire properly to to respond to it. So that, that overshadows a lot of what he does. But I've also got a problem with the the way he treats the media, you know, he doesn't really uh, expose himself to proper scrutiny. He's much, much happier in front of a placard-waving crowd with a with a metaphorical loud hailer in his mouth than he is actually answering questions. And the petulance that comes to the surface so quickly when he is ever expected to answer proper questions is, is, is deeply unattractive. And I would have thought from a leadership point of view and a political point of view, quite problematical. Labour seems to be stuck with them, though. Uh, yeah, they do. I mean, it's uh, it's, it's it's a uh, crikey, fascinating political period, and that's a fascinating part of it. You can't help thinking that Labour would be streets ahead in the polls with a different leader. But then, what would that do? That would definitely be true in any other circumstances. But what would that different leader's Brexit policy be? And that's what everyone's so terrified at the moment of in in, in Corbyn's circle is jumping one way or the other and feeling the ground fall from beneath you as everybody piles over to to the other side and and that i think explains why they're trying to straddle this 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 brexit question this second referendum question and you know they just won in peterborough they got a bit of a coating in in the euros and in the council elections but as you say he's still there so i i I think if i was paid enough you could probably make quite a strong pr position for at least trying to argue that that the tactic hasn't been an unmitigated disaster Uh, do you still think that britain is faced really with only two choices it's black and white on one side no deal brexit on the other side no brexit i I thought i first thought that last july and um literally everybody either laughed or, or or shouted at me particularly brexiters oddly even as recently as last july the absolute confidence that there was some uh, magnificent, plausible, achievable deal within reach if only we believed more or if only we uh, adopted a tougher stance or if only we threatened to walk away with with no deal at all. Um, that They were so dismissive and derisory about that. Uh, and it wasn't just a suggestion. It was a stone-cold prediction that obviously I still stand by. Um, uh, but they're the ones now that are, of course, insisting in classic Brexit tradition, insisting that they knew all along or that they wanted all along that we were going to end up leaving without any deal at all, and that the sooner we can do it, the better, which is a, a position of such mind-boggling absurdity that that you just wonder what we've all been doing for the last three years. I, I do wonder, there's something very particular, obviously, about British politics, and it, it seems to me, looking at it from across here, we have social class here. Social class is very yes. important in the way our politics works, but it's not remotely as important, it seems to me, as the role it plays in the United Kingdom. And I've heard you talking about, you know, the way in which, you know, drawling upper class accents seem to give people yeah. a level of authority in the UK that, that people will just believe them or follow them like sheep. Equally, some of the, a lot of these conflicts in the Labour Party are about different understandings of what the working class by which I probably mean here the white working class once yes. at this stage in in British history. Do you, do you, I mean you're public school educated yourself? I mean, mm. do you? How do you read all those kind of class strands and how they play into all of that? I, I think it bang on. I, I've been really surprised recently by the by what you can only really describe as deference, a real built-in deference. I think most obviously with Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is 
you know, he's a, an empty vessel of a man, and yet he is perceived by uh, people who see themselves as being his social inferiors as, as as being some sort of savant, some some sort of sage. Farage obviously adopts the ludicrous persona of the of the uh, golf club uh, regular or the or the sort of weird when he dresses up like a sort of weird gamekeeper. He's very much playing into that class depictions Boris Johnson um, uh, a politician of, of almost incomparable dishonesty and incompetence uh, likely to be our next prime minister because people are buying into the personality and all three of those personalities are, are deliberately uh, deliberately posh and it's it's staggered me that the cap doffing forelock tugging mentality of an awful lot of people I guess it's what was meant historically to, to move on to the next bit of your question by that phrase working class Tory you know the the ones that Anaya and Bevin would have would have seen as 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 in many ways pitiful because they vote for their own inequality. They vote for their own inferiority, either in the hope that one day they'll be on the winning side of of epic unfairness or genuinely. And this is what's been the biggest shock to me in the last few years. Genuinely, because they you see it with Donald Trump on a on a on a massive scale for less class entrenched reasons. But this idea of putting your faith, putting your trust in a man, regardless of his actual integrity, but entirely because of his perceived persona. And in Britain, that, that perceived persona, if it's posh, it, I, I mean, it puts you on third base, I think. It, it puts you, you know, halfway around the park before the other lot have started running. Finally, I mean, the book is called, as I said, How to Be Right in a World Gone Wrong, which is obviously yeah, great, great, for one, great for one's ego, at least. You know, yes. we, all, we all want to achieve that, at least. But maybe we might want to achieve a bit more and try and get the world back on the right track as well. Do you see any sign of that happening at all? We've been on this roller coaster ride for the last five years or so. No, I don't. I, don't. I hate this question. I really do, because I'd much rather provide you with an upbeat answer. I can't see in the short term things getting better before they get worse. And, and then if we come out of the European Union with no deal, not only is there almost certainly going to be um, a, a terrible, terrible set of circumstances economically, which will bleed into socially, but there's also going to, of course, be, given the things that we were saying about the British media, there's going to be that absolute um, passionate pursuit of a target to blame for for whatever bad things are happening and, uh, and it, it, you know if it is Brexit that's to blame and the newspapers that have been slavish cheerleaders for Brexit are looking for someone to blame things things could get quite ugly you know it could it could it could history suggests that it could see an even deeper lurch into the swamp on that less than optimistic note, we'll <laughs> sorry, leave it there. Sorry, <laughs> It's okay, James. Uh, listen, thanks very much for joining us. You can see oh, James at the Dorky Book Festival uh, next week. Um, see you then, maybe myself, James. Thanks for joining Look us. Look forward to it. Thanks ever so much. And James's book, How to Be Right in a World Gone Wrong, is published by WH Allen. And as we said, he's being interviewed by David McWilliams at the Dorky Book Festival next Saturday, June the 15th. And for further information, see dorkybookfestival.org. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and to all of you who have been in touch with me over the last while. You can always find me on Twitter or you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks for listening. 